0: Matthew chapter 28, then. uh, We read earlier this and other passages. We'll be looking at the resurrected Christ's plan for this age. It has been quite a while, in fact, according to my record, several years, since I devoted an entire message uh, to this. What did the resurrected Christ teach, command uh, his followers to do? We need to do this periodically. Um, we will have, God willing, you know, new folks in. They need to be taught what this said, what the, what the Bible says. We need to be reminded of it because we can sometimes forget or we just need a recalibration. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, this is what Jesus told us to do. Um, young people need to hear it. Young people who've grown up in this church, uh, they heard it probably several times, but as they mature, They're starting to connect the dots better. They need to understand again and hear again what the Lord Jesus says about this. We need to hear this too because there sadly are competing and contrary ideas. What should the church be doing? So as we come to this subject, I'll be looking at several passages here. Remember, this is along the lines of Jesus of the resurrection accounts of Christ, we have four in Matthew, Mark Luke, and John don't look at them as contrary to each other they're different witnesses and in a court of law, it helps provide a, a much better picture same thing with what we call these great comas- great commission passages. so as we come to this, let me ask you a couple que- a question a Question with a a lot of different parts to it. So, why do we have Sunday? Don't answer. Just think about it. Uh, Why do we have Sunday morning services? Why do we have a fellowship lunch immediately after? Uh, Why do we have a Sunday afternoon service? Why do we have a Wednesday time in the Word and a particularly focused prayer as a body? Um, Why do we have a daily devotional that's prepared? That's eight pages. Um, hopefully soon we'll have our missionary back, map uh, back on the wall. Why do we have that? Why do we have a piano? A pulpit? Um, why do we have this building and all the things that are in it? Why do we use hymnals? Why is there preaching and teaching? Why do we pray? Why do we... S- live holy lives or strive to live holy lives? Why do we seek to encourage marriages to be strong and Christ-like? What's the aim? What's the end? What's the goal with all these things? Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 and other, as we sometimes call them, missions passages, refer to everything that we do and are as Christians. Christians. And as a church. Everything that we are, and everything that we do is encapsulated, it's in form in, in this that we read here. Matthew twenty eight, eighteen. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This idea of missions or the Great Commission is sometimes summarized today under a phrase, church planting. Now, I appreciate that focus because for so long, the focus had been you just need to, quote unquote, get people saved and make decisions. And that's a a, having church planning is a, is a better focus than just getting, as it were, people saved. But sadly, how it has worked out over the decades is that the cart gets put before the horse. Now, kids, that might be, well, the older kids know that, but cart before the horse, I don't get it. Okay, maybe trailer in front of the, the truck so think about uh, our brother who drives a semi-truck. If he's going to drive a semi-truck down the road, which comes first, the tractor trailer or, or the tractor part or the trailer? Imagine if Mr. Kinter was driving down uh, I-80, which I'm sure he would love, in reverse. <laughs> How long will that happen? Now, he's a good truck driver. I am pretty sure he's not going to have much accidents. But what could potentially happen? What will eventually happen? There's going to be problems, aren't there? As well, he's probably going to get pulled over (laughs) by Ohio's finest. And things will no longer be happy in the Kinter household. When you put the cart before the horse or... The trailer before the truck, that's not how things go, is it? The idea is, in church planting today, that in order, and I've had many men tell me this, this is in most of the books that are out there today about, quote-unquote, church planting. If you're going to start a church, here's what you do. You have everything in place. All the, tr- all the trimming, all the trappings of, a quote-unquote, a church. And then you have a launch service, and you invite people to come. As we work through these passages today, I hope one of my, my one of my goals is that I'm going hope that you're going to see that is putting the cart before the horse. It's putting the trailer before the tractor. And what can also happen with this idea of church planting is that churches our size can say, we could never plant a church. We just can't get involved in this because we don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We don't have the personnel. Only big churches can really do church planting. And as we read through this, and I hope as we've read this, that our response is going to be, really? 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 Consider what Jesus has said, what he has, and what he has promised here. And consider who Jesus started with. Eleven disciples. And how great were they? Remember the problems and issues that they had? Let's begin first, number one, with what, should, what must our ultimate controlling aim? That's your blank there. What must our ultimate controlling aim be? It must be to glorify God. Our ultimate controlling aim must be to glorify God. That is, number one, the ultimate purpose or goal of missions is the glory of God. Why we do something. So think back to the list that I began with. Why do we have a piano, uh, hymnals, all these different things? Why do we do these things? It must be to glorify God. All that we are, all that we do. What's the idea of glorifying? I mean, that's an, a, a word or expression. Easy to say, isn't it? Another word can be magnify. Think of a magnifying glass. It helps you see it better. Uh, the idea is to draw attention to who God is and what God has done. As we hear the word as we sing scripture, as we pray together, everything that we do as a church, who is that drawing attention to? It must draw attention to who God is, a preeminent Christ. Think about the lost. Think about sinful humanity. They do not magnify Christ. They cannot magnify Christ, because they are prisoners of sin and under Satan's control. They, Romans 8, will not do that. Recognize and respond to God and his works. And so number two, all goals must work toward the fulfillment of glorifying God. That must rule everything that we do. That is the aim. Everything must work towards that. God tells us what we need to do. We'll, we'll get into that, but that's how we glorify him. Passage that's a great passage along this line I'd encourage you to look at, meditate, memorize is 2 Corinthians 4.15. 2 Corinthians 4.15, all things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the abounding of thanks to abound to the glory of God, the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. I'd like you to stop right now and think about this. Consider in your own life, why do you do what you do? Not just now, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, Thursday, whatever the date, whatever the time, why is it that you do what you're doing? What's the aim? What's the aim? Well, it's just what I have to do. No, you need to stop. You need to look higher. God created you. And if you're a Christian, he saved you so that you will glorify, magnify him in everything that you do. Remember what Paul says? Whether then you eat or drink, do all to the eating and drinking even. We're supposed to magnify the Lord. Number three, some blanks here. We glorify God by obeying his commands. Three qualifications that help us see what should be involved in this kind of obedience. We glorify God as we first zealously, zealously obey Christ's commands. Zeal means with your whole heart. You're committed to it. It's not mechanical. It's not lifeless. It's not going through the motions You really want to obey God. Second blank. Sacrificially. Sacrificially. Your whole heart and life. He owns you, Christian. He bought you with his blood. You're not your own. The life that you live, you no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you and rose again. You obey him sacrificially. Zealously, sacrificially, faithfully is your third blank there. Faithfully, absolute submission, real reverence, perseverance. You just keep by God's grace and help, faithfully obeying him. And God is glorified as we obey him. Think of Jesus here. John chapter 4, I think it's verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to, remember, do the will of him who sent me. And then in his prayer before he suffered, John seventeen four, he said, I glorified you on the earth. I accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Our aim must be always to glorify God. Number two, our authority. This comes to the text now, Matthew twenty eight eighteen. Our authority is Jesus Christ. Our authority is Jesus Christ. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We obey Christ's command because he has universal authority. He is the son of God, God in the flesh. We looked at this last week. The resurrection, one of the many things that it does is it proves and shows him to be the son of God. Now you might say, well, hasn't he always been the son of God? Yes, he has. Sadly, there's been some Bible teachers who said, well, when he became incarnate, then he became the son. Or when he was glorified at the transfiguration, no, that's wrong. The eternal son at the incarnation added to himself a human nature. So from that point on, he is always fully God and fully man. But as he walked on earth in his first advent, Philippians 2 tells us he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. And not everyone, very few in fact, recognized him for who he truly was. Then there was that time when Jesus said to Peter and John, Come up with me on the mountain. And they saw his glory. He was transfigured, changed. The resurrection proved him to be the Son of God because what happens when you and I die? This isn't hard. We die. And do we stay dead? Yep, we stay dead, don't we? What about Jesus, the incarnate son? He could not stay dead. Acts 2, Peter tells us. Death could not keep him. Because he's the son. His resurrection proved he is the son. He has authority over everything. His authority is universal in its extent and its range. There is never a place, never a time, never a people that he does not have authority over. Remember this. You are a minister of Christ. There is never a place, time, or person that is not under Christ's authority. You are Christ's. Minister, you're his ambassador. You're his representative. And so when you go and you're talking to someone, you do not need to fear that individual because you can know they're under Christ's authority. I'm under Christ's authority and I can tell them what they must hear. Number two, because Jesus has this authority, we have no right to change, modify, ignore, or do something different than what he commands. It's a sad thing when we view segments of life as under our authority. That somehow, you know, it's Sunday morning. Okay, we need to be Christian. And then when we leave this place and we go home, we can open our books, turn on a television, uh, go participate and do something, flick on our phone. Uh, that's me time. no. What did Jesus say in verse 18? All authority has been given to me, where? In heaven and on earth. In other words, all creation. There is God and everything else. And Christ has this authority over everything else. He sets forth here, there is no quadrant of your life, Christian, that must, uh, there's no quadrant that must not have I'm saying it negatively. Every part of your life must refer, look to, depend on, and point to Christ. Every minute of your life. Every thought that goes through your mind. Every feeling that you have. Now there's a hard one, isn't it? Because our feelings, they change and fluctuate, as the hymn writer says. But every part of your life, Christian, has to live for and be under the conscious sovereignty of the crucified, risen, and coming again Christ. None of us have a right to change what he commands, to modify it, to ignore it, or to do something else. I grew up in a home with just one sibling. So having six kids has been Fun. Having eight grandchildren is—I don't know if I want to say funner. That's going to make my kids feel like they got something second best, right? But you know what I mean. <laughs> Growing up, my parents, West Michigan, ultra conservative, Dutch Reformed. Uh, we went to church on Sunday. You did not go to a store. You did not go out to eat. That was back in the day in the 70s and 80s. Some of those places were still closed. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? But West Michigan is, is kind of, it was, was, it's no longer, but it was kind of a different place. We jokingly referred to it as the New Jerusalem. Uh, there was just this Christianness about it everywhere. Uh, sometimes you hear about there's a Baptist church in every corner. Folks, there you'd have Baptist churches in the corners and in between and in between those there'd be Christian Reformed churches. I mean, it was just everywhere you went. And we're all tall, have big ears and noses because we're Dutch and big feet. I didn't get that one. Uh, It's the German and Scottish side that I have there. Where I'm going with this is with my Dutch upbringing, when mom said, do this, or dad said, do this, there was never a, no, I don't want to. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. Yes, there was, but that was the last time, I guarantee it. <laughs> Vengeance was swift. Imagine, young people, you looking at your mom as a five-year-old And your mom said, do this, and you say, okay, I'm going to modify what you instructed. First of all, hearing a five-year-old use the word modify, that'd be interesting to hear, wouldn't it? I'm going to change what you said. Or, okay, and then you go do something completely different. What hopefully will happen with that five-year-old? They're going to receive some discipline and instruction by their parents, aren't they? It's far more significant with our Lord and Savior who has all authority and he has told us what we need to do. Number three, we need his universal authority. Satan still roams. We're in a spiritual conflict. He hinders the go- strives to hinder the gospel and we are seeking to deliver souls, Acts 26, out of darkness into his light, into Christ's light. And we do not have any authority of our own to do this. When you see people, Christians, preachers on TV or the internet, and they say, Satan, I bind you. Turn it off. Change the channel. You shouldn't be there to begin with. But they have no authority to do that, even if they say, in Jesus' name. There's no scriptural basis for that whatsoever. Jesus does that. We must depend on his authority that he says here Jesus rose from the dead so now what well that brings us to the number three and this comes to the disciples question in acts 1. so if you want you can turn over to acts1 or you could just take your bulletin that we read earlier and uh, that's why I included the verse numbers this time in their scripture reading um, I don't include the script or the, the verse numbers because I want us to be focused on the text. But this might be helpful this time, if you want to use your back of the bulletin, uh, to refer to some different verses here. Jesus proved himself to be alive, verse 3, by many infallible proofs. He did this over 40 days, and he also spoke about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he then got together with them, this would have been in Galilee. Remember last week, we, looked up, we remembered how he told his disciples to go to Galilee. Jesus told them, verses 4 and 5, to uh, wait for the promise of the Spirit. Then verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? A perfectly natural question. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. He's the King of Israel. He was crucified, had that oh, that, that, that on the on the cross. He just taught verse 3 about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Lord, is it at this time you're gonna bring in the kingdom? And what's Jesus' answer? Verse 7. Don't worry about that right now. It's not for you to know the time or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So number three, our activity. Our activity is making disciples. That's how it's put in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Making disciples. So how oral Bible church must glorify God under Christ's universal authority by making disciples is that, that is the, number one, the specific activity, the specific activity of the Great Commission. It is not getting decisions, nor is it simply announcing the gospel. That might cause you to, whoa, that doesn't sound right. Well, think about it. If it's just announcing the gospel, we just need to get on every radio and every internet and you know announce it, and then we're done. And that's it. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, make disciples. So what's a disciple? Number two, if you've been around uh, our church, you probably are able to fill this in. We use a little guy's name, Bob, as the acronym here. But if not, a disciple is, number one, one who believes Christ. He believes Christ. He hears the message. And he trusts, receives, rests, repents, and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Number two, he obeys Christ. He obeys Christ. There's a submissiveness, um, a readiness to obey him, to want to be like him, to love him, uh, and service. You're a rebel transformed into a follower. He believes Christ. He obeys Christ. He bears fruit for Christ. He bears fruit for Christ. Remember, uh, simply having right knowledge about God is insufficient. The demons have right knowledge about God, don't they? They have an emotional response. They tremble, but they're as lost as can be. What is the thing that characterizes a genuine follower, disciple of Christ? He believes, he obeys, and he bears fruit. That is the evidence of life given by the Spirit, transforming the life and continuing in Christ. A couple passages here. There's dozens in the New Testament. But John 8, 31 to 32. John 8, 31 to 32. Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Continue in my word. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Matthew 7. Verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that, name, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We could also reference the parable of the soar, the soils in Matthew 13. What was the characteristic of one who truly believed, who was truly saved? They bore fruit, some 30, 60, and 100 fold. How do we make disciples, number three? This is where we have considerable more information. How do we make disciples? Uh, Several things here. We make disciples... By bringing, I'll put it this way, bringing sinners face-to-face with the gospel message. Bringing the gospel message to them. Evangelism, we kind of get this idea of, of, I I need to get this person to believe. Nope, that's God's work, isn't it? Your work is to teach them the truth and to pray, Lord, open their eyes, open their hearts, so that they'll receive it and believe it. You have to bring sinners face-to-face with the gospel message, and you have to call for repentance and faith. That's the first part of it. Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all the nations. A second part, is it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, this is where you also have, in your, on, the, on your sheet there, on your scripture reading that we read, Mark 16. Um, You could, 1616, where it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And automatically the hackles go up. What in the world? Who knows this church of Christ kind of thing? And you could throw in there Acts 2.38, where Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Um, Put it this way. We make disciples by, number one, bringing sinners face to face with the gospel message. And number two, by immersing and adding them to the church. So what's this talking about with Mark 16, 16 and Acts two 38? You're baptized because your sins are forgiven. You're not baptized in order to get your sins forgiven. You're baptized because your sins are forgiven. Remember the, the principle in interpreting and handling passages that aren't that clear. You look at what are the ones that are clear. And every time when there's immersion or baptism, they believed and they were. Uh, baptized, immerse. That's always the pattern there. The third thing involved is in verse 20 of Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So there's the, if you will, evangelism, then there's immersing and adding them to a church. Uh, Acts 2.41, we could also throw in there. And then number three, this teaching them, teaching believers to obey Christ's commands. And I'm going to add a phrase here, in the context of a local church. Are you adding a scripture, pastor? No, this is how it worked out. In fact, Jesus said this. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. There's a lot wrapped up in that expression in the context of a local church. You've got your ordinances and preaching and worship and prayer, uh, discipline, all those things. Number four. Another aspect of our, our action, of make, our activity of making disciples. Number four, we must make disciples in our and outlying areas. Our area and our outlying area. Remember, Jesus' authority is over what? Just northeast Ohio. Sorry, folks. If you leave here and go to Michigan, you're on your own. I know some Buckeyes who think that way. But that's not what it says, is it? On the basis of Christ's universal authority, this command always applies. There's never a time, there's never a place where making disciples is irrelevant. Never a time, never a place where it is unsuitable, where it's inappropriate, or it's out of place. You might say, what about times of persecution? We must still make disciples. But we could lose our lives. You're right. Fear him who can kill the body. I got it wrong there, didn't I? Do not fear him who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who, the Lord, fear him. Your life is in his hands, isn't it? What did we look at last week? They can kill this body, but it's just a tent. It's going to fold up. But I'll rise from the dead. Yeah. We must always make disciples. Those who are around us and those who are far from us. Or in this way, those who are in our area and in outlying areas. Number five, we must make disciples of everyone. Everyone. Note verse 19. Make disciples of all the nations. Or in the back of your bulletin, Mark sixteen fifteen, Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Or Luke 24, verse 47. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Or Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Never look at someone and say you're different from me. I'm not going to be a witness and testimony to you. Horrific. But yet much of, there's a lot of church philosophy that's based on that. That is not God's way. Number 6, you must intentionally intentionally make disciples. Go is the word in verse 19. Don't just sit and wait for them to come to us. No. When you're out and about, people that you meet, you must tell them about Christ. But let's also keep in mind that the Great Commission doesn't involve only evangelism. No, it's also teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. So every time you are with a brother and sister, you must minister to them. Let's not forget that. The focus can often only be on evangelism as far as that's how you make disciples. That's the beginning. The whole life in a church that's all wrapped up, everything we do must aim to help Christians grow in the Lord. What we sing, how we sing, the ordinances, our meetings together, our praying, it is all aimed so that we'll glorify God by growing more like Christ. Number eight, Number seven, we must rely entirely on the Holy Spirit for effectiveness. Entirely on the Holy Spirit for effectiveness. This could be, to use a Greek word or a Hebrew word, one of those duh moments, right? Well, of course we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit. But that's not how our human nature works, is it? We sometimes think, I I didn't quite say it right. It's easy to do I mentioned at the beginning of my message about church planting books I've read over the years, men I've listened to, that lot of things I've been taught sometimes. And I always had this desire to uh, do that, to take the gospel where it has not been known, where there's no good church and God willing to, to see people saved and brought together and formed into a church. Um, But then I learned from the church planning gurus, to do that, you need to be a type A personality. I am not a type A person. I'm kind of reserved. Hugging is hard, but I did it today. (laughs) I promised Kristen that when I got better once ago from my sickness, I'd hug him. I forgot all about it, so I gave him a good one today. But the Dutch in me... Oh, it's just hard. <laughs> I'm not that type A personality. And so when you're told you don't have the right kind of personality to be a good church planner, Where did Jesus say that? He didn't, did he? He didn't say anything about money. He didn't say anything about personnel. He gave us his word. He's given us his spirit. And that's what we need. Trust and the Lord. Number eight, making disciples according to Jesus' plan results in new churches. Results in new churches. I already uh, hit this one quite a bit, so I won't say anything more along this line, but that's why I had Acts 14 read this morning. Acts 14, they made disciples, they were gathered, they had leadership, elders there in that church, pastors. <coughs> Last number four, our assurance. Our assurance is Christ's presence. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we can and must faithfully fulfill this command until he returns. I am with you always until the end of the age. doesn't matter what's happening. He's with us. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You're fighting against Satan and innumerable demonic hosts. But you have the Lord with you always. Also, remembering Christ's presence should help protect you from modifying his commands, changing them, or ignoring them. He is with you always, and so obey him. Or a Bible church member, attendee, friend, why are we here? We're not, as a church, here for ourselves. Do you remember one of the first things I Uh, or one of the ways I taught us how to uh, have business meetings with rules of order and how we learn all that you know sometimes people people remember the illustration more than the point you guys have both and I know that because when we were moving stuff in somebody asked me so pastor where's the ice cream machine going now to the uninitiated, that's what I use to teach us how to have motions and seconds and some kind of change things with a, um, an ice cream machine, okay? Um, where was I going with this? <laughs> that's not why we're here, to have ice cream machines. <laughs> Do we enjoy being together? Absolutely. That's what Christians love to be with each other. But we are doing that. We are being this. For God's glory. We are doing this so that we're helping each other be better disciples of Christ. Always remember this. When we break in a little bit and we go have lunch, it's not just to eat. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Use that time to encourage your brother and sister to be encouraged by them. Do you believe in Christ? Maybe you've grown up in this church. You've heard it a million times. But you're starting to think about it a little. It's making more sense. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your sins to be washed away? Christian, are you obeying him? Are you bearing fruit for him? Remember his authority. Remember his presence. He has authority over all things. And he is always present. Are you sacrificially, faithfully, zealously serving him? Let's pray.